Father in heaven, thank you for this morning to spend contemplating your involvement in our life. Um, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come here and worship you freely. Jesus, I, I want to, as I do often, confess that we are all here in different places um, as we wrestle with and contemplate you. Some of us are here because um, we think we're supposed to be. Some of us are here because we're excited. Some of us don't even know if we believe you exist or how we're supposed to relate to you. Uh, we're all in different places on that, but we're here. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would honor our seeking and that we would be found by you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us courage to believe what's true and to push aside what is false, that you would give us the ability uh, not to hold against one another the way things are said, but that we would actually truly look for what is good in being said and hold on to that um, as we walk through this life together. I ask all of that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're in a series, it's only three weeks long, it's called A Series of Unfortunate Events, a working title. Um, and to prepare you for that, I'd like to tell you a story to prepare you for the, the conversation that we're going to have. And the story kind of goes like this. Uh, I, a long time ago, I was sitting by a fire. Um, and there were a group of, of rough people, men and women, and, and there sat Jesus. Uh, and Jesus had been arrested, and I was uh, staring at him. And I'd been hanging out with him for a while, like almost three years. Um, and... Uh, I was kind of a little scared, and I, I, don't know why, I didn't know why I was there. Uh, and this one woman recognized me, and she said to me, like, aren't, you're one of those Galileans, like, you're connected to Jesus. And Jesus looked at me, and I said, nah, don't even know who he is. I'm just getting warmed by the fire. Um, and she's like, no, no, I'm sure it's you. And I said, nah, it's not me. It's not me at all. And, and that, that, that moment in my life was, is, is a traumatic moment. It's a moment that I will always remember. But a moment that's even more important in my life that I will remember is when um, Jesus rose from the dead and I met him on the beach and we ate fish together. And all the disciples ate fish together. And I, I was there and Jesus said to me, do you love me, Eric? And I said, yes. And he said, well, then feed my sheep. And I said, okay, cool. And then he said, Eric, do you love me? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, then feed my sheep. And then he finally said it again, and I got frustrated. And he said, well, feed my sheep. That's a moment in my life uh, that is a moment that has transformed the way I think about my life. It's the way it, it has transformed my understanding of who I am. You can flip the slide. As I said, we're in a series of unfortunate events. You could call that life a series of unfortunate events. And we're going to look at, at Psalm 57. Uh, you could flip the slide, Rod. So we are in this interesting series in that we last week looked at loss, we looked at fear, and we looked at grief, and now we are going to have to look at sadness and depression. Now, the interesting thing about looking at all of these different emotional things, all these different um, words, is that you really can't pull them all apart. Like, sadness is connected to depression. And loss is connected to sadness. And fear is connected to all of them. And grief seems to be an integral part in all of it. 
And yet, what we're attempting to do is pull them apart and give them definitions and, and try to help us understand. Now, the, the hope is not that somehow we all have a better understanding of fear and a better understanding of loss and we know how to grieve better and sadness and depression are things we can avoid. More importantly is that we hope in these next few weeks that we can give you some tools, some things that you can hold on to as you face this gigantic kind of conglomerate of experiences. So let me, let me just kind of help you understand what I mean by this because sadness, in particular on what I'm speaking on this morning, is what psychologists would call a core emotion. In fact, there's a, a, a school of psychology that believes that everybody has like a core set of emotions. There are like five of them, but sadness is one of them. And so everybody experiences sadness the exact same way. Like internally, we have the same physiological experience. So when I say I'm sad, we can kind of say, oh yeah, I know at least physiologically what that means. But here's kind of what sadness can lead to in secondary and even further out emotions. So sadness can lead to guilt, a sense of being abandoned, despair, depression, loneliness, boredom, remorse, feeling ashamed, feeling like you're ignored or victimized, feeling powerless, vulnerable, inferior, isolated, apathetic, indifferent. It's complicated. Right? We're complicated. And here I am standing up here trying to help you understand sadness and depression and how you might think about it. So just to have an operating definition, sadness in general is, involves a loss that you're going to eventually get over. Right? Like you lost your toy, you're sad, you'll get over it. Like even when it comes to losing, say, a, a, a parent or, or a human being in your life, you won't necessarily get over it, but as time progresses, your sadness experience will change. Okay? But with depression, depression is, has to do with the loss of meaning and purpose. So it is a conglomerate of experiences in which you get to the place where you feel like you have lost meaning and purpose in your life. Let me offer you what three, we could call them prophets, of the Old Testament, how they expressed their depression, and all of it, I'll warn you, is suicidal. Okay, because, and, and this is what's interesting about in particular the Old Testament, is that they don't, the writers just don't hide their emotion, okay? And some of you would be afraid to say some of the things, in particular that Jeremiah says, we'd be afraid to say them out loud. So let's start with Jonah, who was a prophet who had to go do something he didn't want to do. And in Jonah 4, he says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then down in verse 8, he said, It would be better for me to die than live. He's he's just he's pretty keen on because he I mean he's pretty disappointed on the outcome of his prophetic you know utterances and he'd rather not live than see those things. Um, but Job, who who was under a lot of pressure and affliction, says this: Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to loosen to loose his hand and cut off my life. Now, Jeremiah, I mean, he's the poetic and weeping prophet. He's emotional. You know, he's that guy or that girl. You're like, oh, wow. They, he's got a lot of emotion, and he likes to express it. And listen to what he says. In his depression, he says, Cursed be the day I was born. 
May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning and battle cry in the noon. For he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? You can click the slide, Ron. Depression, sadness, we, we deal with them. They're, they're real things. Scripture is very, very clear about the pain of them and the loneliness of them. Last week, Corey invited us into something really healthy, and that was to learn to grieve our losses. And he gave us a beautiful picture, and he said, first, that to lose something, I mean, to, to have, like, to, to grieve, you have to have a loss. You have to have a pain, right? And from that pain, you have to have sorrow. And from that sorrow comes comfort. Like that's what a grief, the process of grief is, is pain and sorrow and then comfort. But he gave us a picture out of Jesus' story and out of Easter that was beautiful and invites us into a way of dealing with all of this. And he said that first we have Good Friday, right? We have the greatest pain in history. When the God of the universe became a man, lived out a life that you and I couldn't live, and died a death that we could not die. He died for our sins. Right? This is a, a loss. It's Jesus on the cross. But the place that most of us find ourselves in, and, and Corey was gracious to say it's not just a day, it could be years, is that we find ourselves in this place that the church calls Holy Saturday the day between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And in Holy Saturday is the place where we can reflect just like the disciples who reflected that what the heck is going on? Jesus who died, this is the guy who stopped storms. This is the guy who healed people who had leprosy. This is the guy who threw things around the temple and said, I'll destroy this temple and build it up in three days. And now he's dead and the Romans have killed him. And he's not getting up. And so there's a confusion and an anxiety and an angst. And that is where you and I find ourselves so often in our life. As we face loss, as we face pain, as we face stress. But the third part of it, the place of comfort, comes the cross. The the resurrection And the resurrection is comfort because all of a sudden, we are not alone. In our suffering, in our anxiety, all of a sudden there is a joy, but it is a joy of the presence of the resurrected king. Who, as he so beautifully illustrated in reading the book, so if you haven't listened to the sermon, you need to go, I'm not going to explain the book. But as the rabbit, for those of you who are here, kind of inched up to the, the boy who things were all broken, who was just there, there in the midst of the pain to comfort. There was a presence 
in the aloneness. And Corey called this the blessed healing. That when you and I are willing to step into grief and acknowledge our pain and wrestle with our questions and acknowledge the presence of God, we begin to experience this healing. I think, you can flip the side pod, that this applies to wrestling with sadness and depression. You and I live in exile. If you're a human being, even if you don't follow Jesus, if you're like, I'm not sure about this Jesus guy, you know you don't belong here. Now, not that you don't belong here on earth, but that something is wrong and you don't fit, that there, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. If you're a follower of Jesus, you find yourself in a unique place in understanding this word exile and that if you decide that Jesus is your Lord, and this is a key part of the New Testament, it's not just about inviting Jesus to live in your life. Living in your life and being with you, that's great, but following Jesus is saying that Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, the one that you recognize over you. If that's true, you become his priest and you become the priest of a holy God. And so all of a sudden you find yourself in this place where you actually have to confront in a very different way the sorrows and the depressions of this world. So if you're in exile, I would argue to you that you are in a process of moving into sadness, you are in sadness, or you are leaving sadness with a short reprieve. But I would also argue, like the Old Testament and New Testament argue that you were also probably on a road into depression, you are depressed, or you are leaving depression and have a reprieve from it. What I want to suggest to you is that as we look at the landscape and as we experience the brokenness of this world from the very beginning and wrestle with sadness, wrestle with loss and brokenness, I mean, you know... Sylvia just said before church that, you know, she's falling apart one piece at a time, right? Like, she, it's, we're, we're all moving towards a, bro, a, a complete brokenness, right? Like, this is, this is the process. Um, as we face those, if we don't face them well, we will find ourselves in a deep, dark depression that's hard to get out of. Now, I want to talk about depression for a minute because depression is a buzzword that kind of freaks people out, right? Because if you say, I'm depressed, maybe that means for a few days you were down. Or maybe it means that for weeks and weeks you've had this experience where you are wrestling with the meaninglessness of your life and your purpose. And sometimes we, we call that major depression and other times we call this clinical depression. And then we begin to talk about medication. Well, I want to talk about medication for a minute because it's really key to living in exile, because from the very beginning, we've been trying to medicate ourselves, right? Medication is not just a new thing, because our body, our physiology is not working right. And so either legally or illegal, we medicate. Now, I suggest you do it legally as your pastor, um, and under the care of a psychiatrist. Now, here's, or a doctor, but here's the thing I'm going to say about medication. You should be on it if you need to be on it, if you're suffering from depression or wrestling with things. But here's what we do with medication. And here's the problem, is that we believe that somehow it's going to magically fix things. That somehow it's the thing that's going to fix the problem. It is working in a process, right? It's working, but it's not the thing that you and I have to 
kind of lay down our altar around and say, this is going to fix us. There, there is something else that I want to invite you into. You can flip the slide. And that is this Hebrew word that sounds like a medication. It's called zakar. I want to invite you to take a medication. I want you to take a biblical medication. <laughs> they are only good. Zakar is a word that is translated over and over again in the Old Testament as consider, mention, remember. It says in the Old Testament to zakar the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath. Zakar is the medication of the Bible. You and I are invited into a lifestyle of considering and mentioning and remembering. Think about what Jesus says at communion, at the Passover meal. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, we are going to look at Psalm 77 because Psalm 77 helps us understand how to apply this medication, right? how to take it, but it also acknowledges and honors living in Holy Saturday. It honors the place where we feel loss and weight and confusion, and it helps us identify things. And in fact, in some ways, Psalm 77 is the psychiatrist's, like oh, the, the Bible's way of diagnosing you and helping you understand where you are and how to move through this. So, Psalm 77. Now, so it is written by a guy named Asaph. Or Asaph, or however he says his name. Nobody really knows because no one's met him. Um, but he definitely would go to the village if he lived in the 21st century or whatever. Um, he, he likes to write songs that probably are best written in minor keys, and he's kind of depressing. Like, he likes to focus on these kinds of things. And so we're going to kind of look at him, and he's going to kind of help us walk along thinking about this and how we might, I think, grieve in a good way, how we might face sadness and wrestle with our depression. So in verse 1, and, and maybe I should, well, verse 1, we'll talk with one. He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Now, Psalm 77, and I suspect most psalms are... Um, the way the Hebrew is used is weird. And so when you begin to look at different translations, they vary. They're all saying the, basically the same thing, but the, the translators are wrestling with how to say it in a way that, you know, two languages out can understand. So really in verse 1, what he's saying is, I prayed, I, I cried out, my prayers went up, and God heard me. He like, listened to me, one text says. God listened to me. So the first thing he's going to say is, all that I'm about to talk about, God was involved in it. And then verse 2, he says, When I was distressed, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. You can click the slide. This word distressed is uh, it's used in Leviticus about uh, an encouragement to a man not to marry his wife's sister as a rival wife because of the kind of distress that's going to cause. The idea in this, the best way to understand this, the distress that he's talking about here is a distress that uh, if you had 
five spouses and your entire job was to make sure they were all happy and didn't fight with each other. That's the kind of distress he's under. That's, that's the angst that he's feeling. And what's interesting in it is in all of this distress, and here's really the distress for him. He has been in the inner circle with King David and then with Solomon. And now the Israeli, like the Israelite community has broken into two kingdoms. And his distress is how broken everything has become because of David, King David's sin and King Solomon's sin. And it's now playing out in the whole nation. And he is distressed. And he's beside himself. And he says his soul will not be comforted. So the honesty in all of this is that he's saying, I feel a way and I can't change it. And I feel a way and you can't change it. Right? Which is the thing that we all want when we feel sadness or we're experiencing depression, is we want the feeling to change. Either the strong emotion of sadness or the emptiness of depression, we want it to go away. And yet what he's saying is, I, it, it wouldn't go away. It would not be. I would not be comforted. My soul would not be comforted. So in verse 3, he says, I remembered you. So that word is Zakar. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. And then it says Selah. So we're supposed to pause there, but since I'm up here, I'm going to move the Selah down one verse. He doesn't know it. Um, you kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. The reason I want to move that down is he gives us a really good, you can flip the slide. He gives us a really good picture of the symptoms of depression, right? So what's the first one? Do you hear what? It's groaning. Like, and this groaning is kind of a mixture of anger, internal, like, you know, like that idea of you're hiking up a hill and you have a gigantic bag on your back and you're thinking, is there really something nice up there? Because I could just stop right here. Like, I don't, I don't think I need to get to the top because this is too heavy for me to go. It's like, whoa, I, I just, that sense of like you want to get out of bed and it's a groaning because the next thing he says is that I'm faint. I'm too weak. It's just, it's people who talk about depression often talk about a weight on their chest. This is what he's talking about. There's a heaviness to him. Everything feels heavy and he feels weak, right? It's, Third thing he says, and this is interesting, because even though he's zakaring God, he blames God for his condition. He says, God, you're keeping my eyes open. I can't sleep. Right? When you're depressed, you can't sleep. A lot of times your brain is racing and racing and racing. And eventually, you start blaming the person sleeping next to you. You blame the dog. You blame, you're just blaming whoever. Somebody's fault for me staying awake. For him, it's like, God, you're keeping, like, you are prying my eyes open. I can't handle this. So there's, there's this, uh, he's got to wait. He feels weak. He can't sleep. And then the interesting one is he's having trouble talking. But this, this here is not having trouble talking and like he can't speak and ask for a glass of water. What he's having trouble talking about is he's trying to explain how he feels and he can't do it. He can't do it. I, I was looking at tons of different slides about depression, and it was really fascinating to see all the lists of people trying to communicate what it feels like to be depressed. You can't, because actually depression is not a feeling that we all have in common. We all are depressed differently, but it, it 
but the symptoms are the same. Right? And so what this man is experiencing under his distress is a depression, a conglomerate of feelings that put him in a place where he's restless, he feels weak, he cannot talk, he's groaning. And so he begins to think because he's awake. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. So he's thinking, I'm thinking about David, I'm thinking about Solomon, I'm thinking about everything that's gone on, all the bad things. I remember the songs, my songs in the night, which they're probably all depressing. And my heart mused and my spirit inquired. And this is, you can click the, click the next slide. This is the part that comes, that really like, addresses the purpose and meaninglessness. I'm going to add something here. I'm going to add me, because this is really what he is saying. And, and this is what you begin to think when you feel depression. He says, my heart mused and my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject me forever? Now, I added the me just to remember that. Will he never show his favor again to me? Has his unfailing love vanished forever from me? Has his promise failed for all time for me? Has God forgotten to be merciful to me? Has in his anger, has he in his anger withheld his compassion for me? Part of wrestling with depression, no matter where you are in it, it's just kind of mild depression, serious depression, is that you get to the place where you begin to question, do I have meaning and purpose? Because here's at the core what all of us need to live life, meaning and purpose. Without meaning and purpose, there's no reason to live. So we're always searching for meaning and purpose. Our entire drive in life is to say, I need meaning. Right? We look at other people and tell them, tell me I'm important. Tell me I have meaning. Tell me that there is something, some substance for me. For him, he, and, and, and this is the important part that that Zakar, he remembers the Lord. This is a self-centered conversation, but it is a conversation with God. And what he's saying is, God, do you think about me? Do you care about me? Is this, am I important to you? What the heck is going on? Right? I want to, Stop and actually say, that's good. It's good. You should ask those questions in your sadness and in your sorrow. When, you rec- when you're up at night and can't sleep, you should ask these questions. right? Because here's the thing, and I said this when, in, when we're going through Daniel and, and talking about prayer. Your words, when you speak them, they don't just bounce off the ceiling. The beginning of this psalm is a promise that as you are in Holy Saturday, God listens. He hears you in the midst of all of this turmoil and wrestling. He sees you. It's good to ask those questions. It's good to wrestle with them. But verse 10 changes things. And verse 10 is where the Hebrew gets really obscured, so it's not going to sound like it makes a lot of sense to you, but I'll read it. It says, then I thought, to this will I appeal. The year of the right hand of the Most High. So, all of a sudden he's he's thinking about, I'm going to change the way I'm having this conversation. 
I started reading all the commentators and they were wrestling with this because they're like, this doesn't, this doesn't sound right. This is not how, like, the NIV doesn't translate this well. They, all the other, so people are wrestling with it. And all the commentators that I read, and even as I looked at the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, this is kind of the, the, the gist of what he's actually saying. What he's saying is, God is the only one who can change my condition. Like, he's saying, I'm going to change my appeal here. Because up at the top, he says, my soul, I, I said, oh God, you know, basically change things. And, and my soul was not changed. But what he, all this conversation and everything he's wrestling with is he's trying to change his feeling and experience. He's trying to escape. There's a change in this, in this psalm where he says, okay, one translator said it's, it, it, it best to be translated, it is my job to grieve and God's job to change me. Like, that that's what he's kind of wrestling with. You can flip the slide around. And so he begins to do something in this change. He begins to zakar the ways of God. Here's the shift. He takes the medication that the Bible offers him, and he begins to really go after it. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. So he begins to zakar the ways of God. He begins to think about the deeds of God. He begins to think about the miracles of God. He begins to consider them. He begins to think about the works and the mighty deeds and the powerful acts among us. And so he changes his mind. All before, it was this focus about him and his condition and where he's at and the fact that he can't sleep. And all of a sudden, he makes a shift. And he says, I'm going to remember what God does. I'm going to remember all these things that he's done. And he makes a shift in the way he does that. Now, here's the thing that's, that's really interesting about the way he does it. I want you to hear the story that he tells and then I'll kind of clue you into it if you haven't, haven't figured it out. He says in verse 15, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed, and the very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies around resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's a card the ways of God. And so what he began to do is to tell the story of his ancestors. You can flip the slide right. Um, he began to t- retell the story of his ancestors. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting about a Hebrew person. When they begin to reflect on God and reflect on what he did, they have all of these things that are built into their life and their lifestyle and the law to remember things. So when a little boy comes and talks to his dad or mom, they tell the story over and over again of them being delivered out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, and ending up in the Promised Land, and all that God did. 
They tell them over and over again. It's the story that they remember. But here's the thing. They think they were there. They don't remember it like grandpa or great-great-great-great-grandpa was delivered from Egypt. No, the little boy was delivered from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. And so as he reflects on these things, he's reflecting not on mighty deeds that were done for his people, though they were. He's reflecting on mighty deeds that were done for him when he was delivered out of Egypt, when he walked through the Red Sea. You see, what they do when they celebrate Passover, what Jesus invites us in communion when he says to remember is not to remember that 2,000 years ago that Jesus died. When you come and take communion, you're remembering that you are looking at the cross and the broken body of Jesus because you stood there and watched it happen. Right? It's an invitation to get your feet dirty, to retell the story with you in it. Because the medication of the Bible in a world of exile is to remember the mighty deeds of God. And what is the most mighty deed of God? His death and resurrection on the cross is his most mighty deed. And the invitation is for you to be at the cross and the empty tomb and waiting for Jesus to raise from the dead. But there is a word in Psalm 77 he says that he will meditate, and this is often connected to um, remembering or considering, is to meditate. Now, here's the thing. When you think about the word meditation, you think about emptying your mind and, and trying to relax. That's not Hebrew meditation. Hebrews don't relax. That's not part of their lifestyle. Uh, when they meditate, they are repeating over and over and over again the law. They're, it actually means to murmur with pleasure. To meditate is it's I'm gonna I'm just going to be walking around there like Jesus did this and he did that. Like like it's this constant immersion in the actions of God and the actions of Jesus to the point where you're unable to differentiate. Like you you begin to forget you live in exile in a way, because you're living so close to Jesus. Now in John chapter fourteen. Jesus offers us something new in this meditation because in some ways, the psalmist, as he reflects on these stories, does not have this particular experience because Jesus has not come. He's not poured out his spirit onto the world. But in John 14, starting in verse 25, he's talking to his disciples and he says, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. I love this the counselor. He's called comforter. The Spirit of God with us, as you and I remember him, actually removes the trouble and the fear in our heart. Because there is something amazing that happens when you and I are remembering and the Spirit of God is reminding that it's transformative to our souls as we meditate on the works of God. But Paul had this idea of retelling the story and not existing in his story anymore, but actually in Jesus' story. But in Galatians 2, 20, and, and many of you probably can quote it from memory. 
the Galatians 2.20 said, Paul is saying, the, the apostle, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a man who didn't see Jesus crucified, and yet his statement is, it's no longer me, it's Christ crucified. I live his life, not my life anymore. So there's this, this retelling that we're invited into as we take zakar, as we remember, as we begin to live out that lifestyle. So how, how do you and I go about doing this in a way that's kind of practical? I want to offer you just a couple ways. One, I opened by taking Peter's place. Peter's the one who denied Jesus, not me. Right? Peter was the one who was restored, not me. And yeah, it was me, not Peter. I was there. Like, I retell that story as if I were there. Because it helps me ground myself in the dirt with Jesus in the midst of my troubles. So I would suggest there are two ways to begin this process. I would suggest that you pick up the book of Mark and you begin to read it. And alongside Mark, you read the the letter to the Ephesians. Because the letter of Ephesians is this huge, beautiful, well, it's not huge, but it's this beautiful letter that kind of lays out God's love for you and what he calls the church to. And Mark is this action-packed, Jesus does this, Jesus does that, Jesus goes here, Jesus is awesome, Jesus dies. Like that's kind (laughs) of, Jesus raised from the dead. Like that's, he's all excited all the time. Um, And, and, but, it's really like very earthy. It, it helps you get there to putting yourself in the story. So I suggest you do that. That's one way to begin this. Now, here's the other way. And here's the beautiful thing. In ancient times, I would have preached a lot shorter sermon, and we would have broken up into groups, and you would have practiced my sermon to get it perfect. And you would have corrected each other until you could quote my sermon perfectly to other people. Because the practice of remembering is being able to repeat what you can, what you have been taught, right? So it's good not just to tell and re, like retell the, the mighty deeds of, of God in the past as you put yourself in them, but to tell the story, your own things that have happened to you, but to tell other people's stories too. So I'm going to tell you Rod's story today. One small story that, that should, that you should retell. I'm going to invite you to retell it. And I'm retelling it now. So a long time ago, Rod had this crazy idea to start a church called Rock the Desert Ministries. Okay, what a name. The village is much better. Um, right? But Rock the Desert, he wanted to rock the desert. He wanted to come down here and rock it. Right? And, and so he's sitting in his office one day, early on, contemplating all the work he has to do and all the things he does to plant this church. And this man walks in with whom he does not know, and they begin to have a conversation. And in that conversation, Rod begins, apparently, to talk about all the things that he has to do, and all the things he does, and, and the stresses of being a church planner. And somewhere in that conversation, this man with whom he does not know and has never seen since, says to him that God can get a rock to plant a church. He doesn't, you know, rock the desert. God can get a rock to plant a church. He doesn't need Rod. Okay, that seems kind of humbling. So then the guy said, so all you need to be is a little better than a rock. Because what he was saying is you don't need, like, what you're doing is not what makes you important, Ron. That's not what's going to plant this church. What's going to plant the church is let me do it and you can join me. Like, you just need to be a little better than a rock. Rocks don't move. 
you can move, right? Like, that's a powerful story because so often you and I want to be a lot more than a rock. So much more because we want meaning and purpose. And what this man was saying to Rod is that you have meaning and purpose in the very fact that God created you as an image bearer. You don't need to be much more than a rock to serve God. I think that's a powerful thing to hear in the midst of us trying to find purpose and meaning. We did start late, but I went kind of long, so I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this community and for uh, their wrestling with you. I just ask that um, you would bless our food, you would bless our singing, and that you would help us to be a people that remember. I ask that in your holy name. Amen.